Good morning again. It's full of room now. Uh, I invite you to open up with me to the book of Romans. We're in chapter 8 this morning. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we have your word and that we have read your word. And we pray now, living God, that you would bless the reading of your word with power, with revelation and strength through your Spirit, that your kingdom would advance in our feeble hearts, that we would be further renewed and transformed to be the people, the sons and daughters you have called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we come to a text this morning as we kind of march through Romans, which I think is truly a, a timeless text. I mean, all all of the Bible is timeless, but, but, but this particular text I find particularly timeless because of themes that we see in it. There is not a person in any corner of the world, regardless of the culture or the strata of society that they live in, that has not at one point or another in their life wrestled through suffering, perhaps many periods of suffering in their life. In this very room right now, I'm sure if we were to take a poll and be honest, there would be some of us that might say, this minute, right now, I got up in the shower thinking about the suffering I am currently enduring. Or, or perhaps it would be very easy for us to think about the suffering that is just not too distantly behind us. Or probably every one of us in the room might say, there is someone in my immediate circle that, that I love and I can look, them going through that period right now. And in the midst of any kind of suffering that we go through, whatever culture, whatever belief system we may be, every human being, as it seems to me, develops a perspective in which they meet that suffering, in which they deal with that suffering. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. Now, I first can remember seeing this powerfully and vividly uh, when I was a teenager. I was 15 years old when my father got diagnosed with cancer. And it was, a, it was an aggressive kind of cancer. And I can remember the, the last holiday we spent together, you know, in, uh, in, in the Thanksgiving, I think it was. And my father was in the next room doing the dishes. And my uncle, a uh, scientist by trade, was there, not a believer. And, you know, he was asking a few questions about the name. And we're going back and forth talking about it. And, and he looks at me very precisely and says, it's over. He's going to die. This is the end. There's nothing you can do. Get over it. And as a 15-year-old, I, I didn't really have, I don't know if I still have the categories now, I certainly did not then. And, and what amazed me is when he said it was the end and he, he continued to expound, it was clear he meant the end completely. Not the end of one life and the beginning of a new life. It was the end. So all you can do is simply move on 
because this is part of the awful existence we have, he would say. That was the perspective with which he met it. Apart from Christ, that is the only true perspective any of us deserve to have. Apart from Christ, we live in the word of the absurdist philosopher Albert Camus or of popular fashion, Liam Neeson's character in the recent movie, The Grey, where as, as we face life's tragedy and life's difficulty, the best we can hope for is to meet it and almost yell back and shout in the face of suffering. We can only define our existence by how courageously and resolutely we meet it, even though in the end we know deep down it will make no difference. It's madness that cannot be reached. However, this is even where we all belong before we come to Christ, rightly. Yet this is not where Christ would leave us once we are in Christ. The gospel must change our perspective on suffering, you see. Jesus Christ did not come merely to leave us forgiven, as if you can say merely forgiven. He didn't come to leave us merely forgiven. He came to save people. He came to transform their heart, their mind, their worldview, their character, their perceptions of what happens in the world. We call this process sanctification. As we continue to read the word, as we continue to pray, as we continue to gather together in assemblies like we see the early church doing in Acts, as we continue to be in relationships with each other where we can sharpen and strengthen each other, we are more fully sanctified, growing in our faith, having the perception that God wants us to have, and doing what we see Paul counseling us to do in this text. We are made to live in light of eternity. We're made to live in light of eternity. There's three, things, three ways we're going to see this build in this text this morning. Number one, suffering is assumed without questioning God's character. The text begins with the sentence, I consider that the sufferings of this present time Consider the sufferings of this present time. It's really kind of remarkable, because if you remember from last week in verse 16 and 17, Paul had this glorious peroration talking about the joy and the power we have as children of the living God. And, and, and he goes from, from, from that joy, we can cry out, Abba, Father, and he moves from that to talk about suffering. And in some ways I'm encouraged by that, because it, it reminds us that the joy that we have in Christ and the transformation that has, has been possible through Christ does not change the reality of the physical existence we live in and the difficulties that we have in that existence. Now, sometimes you get this impression, maybe you, you, you've had it, maybe you've heard it, where you, know, you hear someone share the gospel and, and they share the gospel in a way that makes it sound like if you just come to Jesus, suffering will end. There will be no more suffering in your life. Maybe some of you have heard that. I know I have. You know, generally it happens when the well-meaning evangelist, you're talking to someone who's in the midst of some kind of suffering and doesn't know the Lord. And you're rightly excited and hoping, gosh, I want to see them come to know Jesus. And so you say something like, you know, if you just come to Christ, all this is going to work out. And it'll all be great. And sometimes people latch on to that. They surrender their life to the Lord. And then they end up spinning when yes they are they are saved they are in the process of sanctification but difficulty is still characterizing their lives and and what do you end up thinking have i done something wrong have i done something wrong have, have, have i failed 
Why do I not have this hedge of protection around me? Maybe you dare to admit that, and you begin to think, has God let me down? Because, because I thought that once I became a believer, everything would be fine. And it's not. I'm saved, but everything's not fine. As one commentator put it, Paul is realistic. There is no reason to think that Christians will be free from troubles in this present life. It is important, therefore, that we learn how to bear them. Paul, a man who has suffered intensely, is well qualified to speak about suffering. When you leave your hand in Romans 8, turn with me, if you will, to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Here in 2 Corinthians 11, we have Paul discussing um, the suffering that he has gone through in this life. is in uh, 2 Corinthians 11, starting the second half of verse 21. Are they, what what anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. Brothers, I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all of the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of my Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Democenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. see in Paul's life here many different forms of suffering, but, but, but it's all suffering. Even as in our lives, we will all go through suffering, even though the, the, the nature or the character of that suffering may look different. Again, suffering here is assumed, and Paul does not question God's character in the midst of it. He experiences suffering specifically, you see, for being a follower of Jesus Christ, specifically tied to his faith. He is beaten he is imprisoned, he is flogged, he is lashed. He, the kind of suffering that, that happens repeatedly around the world today just because people claim the name of Christ and refuse to recant. You know, you, you hear the, the, the 20th century uh, experts on this tell us there were more martyrs in the world for the cause of Christ in the 20th century than the 19th centuries combined. 
You know, we hear popular stories in the media today of, you know, like that Iranian pastor, you know, who, who converts from Islam to Christianity and is arrested and they want to murder simply for being a Christian. It's rampant. There is suffering. There is suffering we can face simply because we claim the name Christ. You know, we can suffer the loss of a promotion at work because we see something that, that, that is, is encouraged but that we know is unethical and that Jesus would disapprove of. And we can suffer the loss of status, of income, because we refuse to recant our faith in the midst of it. We can suffer in this life, specifically for the name of Christ, as, as the, a number of pharmacists are in the state of Illinois who have stepped forward and said, we are not going to prescribe this morning after pill because we know it is abortifacient. And you, see, you read about them getting fined and losing their jobs because of to directly tied to their faith. We can suffer the loss of friendship where there's just not enough room for them and Jesus in our lives. It's either we're going to... Sometimes we have those relationships where we can either be their friend or we can be Jesus' friend. Sometimes we can't do both. Sometimes we can. And we can suffer loss and suffering because of our faith. We can su- suffer as we're made fun of, as we're laughed at at school, on the bus, in the place we, we work. Jesus suffered for his faith. Paul and Stephen suffered very clearly for their faith, specifically. And the question is, what kind of perspective do we develop in the midst of that suffering? Do we think that God has abandoned us? Do we think that this is not worth it? Do we think that we're on God's hit list now? Do, do we embrace suffering as Paul does here? Or, or do we run from it? Do we shrink from it? Paul experiences suffering because of other people's sin here in this text. He's in danger from false brothers. He's in danger from robbers who don't really care about his faith, but they care about his money. If you got it, we don't care what you believe, we're happy to take it from you. How many times did you hear him say, I was in danger? Danger is the most recurring word in that passage. I don't know, maybe it came up eight times, maybe? I'm in danger. We can experience suffering at the hands of other people's sin. Perhaps we get our identity stolen. Perhaps someone breaks into our home. Perhaps someone sabotages our work or begins to spread gossip and rumors about us. What perspective do we develop in the midst of this suffering? Paul experiences suffering simply through living in the midst of a fallen world. This is the kind of suffering I think you and I face on a daily basis. You don't have to go too far to have it affect you. Paul experiences hunger. He gets shipwrecked. He has problems with anxiety. The car breaks down on the way to work. The snowstorm knocks out the power. You lose everything in the freezer. You get allergies. You get illnesses. You get cancer. The list could go on and on. And what kind of perspective do we develop in the midst of this everyday suffering through living in the fallen world? When we conclude that God is wicked, Will we languish because we think um, we are made to suffer? Or will we accept it as a matter of fact in this life, viewing as it a temporary but universal phenomenon and concluding simply, who is weak and I am not weak? Will we find the strength to be, as Paul encourages, a good soldier of Jesus Christ as we endure this kind of suffering. You know, when he says this present suffering, 
he, he's not talking about a suffering just that the church in Rome is going through. He's not talking about a, the, the present suffering that just he is going through. He's talking about a universal scope of suffering that we experience prior to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the world we live in right now. And, what, and, and, and everyone on earth does something with it. They find some way to explain it, to rationalize it, to cope with it. What do we do? How can we endure suffering patiently as a good soldier of Jesus Christ? Paul tells us here in Romans, second point, he does it by way of comparison. Listen to verse 18 again. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Consider that sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. So you notice he's making a comparison, and then he's saying the difference is so great it's not even worth comparing. He's making the value of comparison and then saying the scales are so tipped it's not even worth talking about. It's not even worth thinking about. We use this kind of logic all the time. We make a value of comparisons all the time. You know, January 1st rolls around. We all say, well, I think it's time I get in shape. And we go to the gym and we, we sit down with the trainer and we tell them what our goal is and they say, okay, you've, you've got to eat this and you can't eat that or that or that or that or that or that. But you can eat this one thing. And, and then they tell us how much we have to pay them <laughs> as a trainer. And then we find out how many times we have to go to the gym a week. And we sit back and say, well, I really want to be in that kind of shape, but is this really worth it? And maybe we say yes at first. I've got to tell you, the month of January and February, the gym was just a wreck. I felt like there was 50 more percent more people at the fitness edge. It was a good two months for them. And, and then slowly we die because we think, this just isn't worth it anymore. Young people contemplating graduate school do these evaluative comparisons all the time. You go online at Forbes, Forbes.com website, you can look at certain graduate programs and degrees, you say, okay, each degree costs this, it takes two or three years, this is the income I will lose over those course of the years, this is the income I can expect upon graduation, is it, after five years of this new profession, will I realize a return? Is it worth doing? Is it worth it? Paul makes these kind of evaluative comparisons all the time, often in connection with suffering. We, we read it a few minutes ago in 2 Corinthians 4. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He's saying, yeah, we've got two things. Here we've got this this affliction and this suffering that we're dealing with. And that's here. Like, you know, imagine Paul setting up a scale. I wish I would have had a scale this morning. He's like, this is, this is the affliction we're in the midst of. It's real. Notice he never says it's not real. Sometimes we do that because we say it's not that big of a deal. I've just got to suck it up. He, doesn't, he always calls it real. But he says this is this light momentary affliction. And he says this is the eternal weight of glory. And you can see he puts it on a scale to compare and then he compares and says, you know what? The eternal weight of glory far outweighs, far outstrips, is far more heavy and strong and lasting and enduring and significant than, than this real suffering that we experience right now. I love that a man who has been through everything we just read about him can say, this is a light momentary affliction. I read that and I feel like, man, what is my problem? How does he do that? 
Because as he makes his comparison, his view of the present, this is how he develops his perspective, his view of the present is powerfully rooted in his focus on the future. His view of the present is powerfully rooted in his focus on the future. He's, he's looking at that eternal weight of glory to which he is going. He, you know, it's so easy for us to, to look at the suffering, that we're, the present sufferings that we're in the midst of. And, and, and we look at what we're feeling and we look at what we're seeing. And it's easy for us to look at that and have that be it. And to not move beyond. And if, and if we stay there, then how are we not going to end up defeated and hopeless? We'll end up struck down and destroyed if we do that. If we let our vision hit the suffering and move nowhere else. If we let it hit the weakening of the body and stay there. If we want to live faithfully and courageously in the midst of the suffering, we must acknowledge it, as Paul does, and we must live in the light of eternity. The eternity that we will, as followers of Jesus Christ, lay hold of, that we are called to, that we will experience forever and ever and ever. Verse 19, For the creation waits with eager longing for the sons of God to be revealed. You know, you read that verse, and it almost sounds blasphemous, doesn't it? Because it reeks of narcissism. The creation waits in eager longing for the sons of God to be revealed. If it doesn't shock us, then, then we have a problem. The creation is eagerly waiting, longing, for the, ch- the revelation of the children of God, followers of our Lord Jesus Christ, who are to receive a glory that we do not even know the fullness of yet, according to verse 17. Wrap your mind around that for a minute. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God wants to do something in you and through you that is so spectacular, so glorious, that the entire creation is on the edge of its seat, waiting, waiting, longing, hungering, thirsting, desiring to see. We are not simply forgiven. We're not, we're not, well, I'm saved, I got forgiven, now I, I guess I just got to wait. No. There is a glory that we are destined for. A glory done in us, through us, that we will live for eternity in the presence of the glorious King. In contrast to the weak and momentary troubles that we face now that come in like the waves from the ocean, but then recede from the shore. Paul is talking about an eternity in glory that we're a part of. You know, this is not the first time in the Scriptures we see creation itself personified. We see it, we see it repetitively in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms. Psalm 98.8 says, Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy. 55.12 says, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall spring forth the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be put off. Do you notice that last phrase in particular? Instead of the thorn shall come the cypress, instead of the briar shall come the myrtle. Here we begin to see why creation is eagerly waiting for the sons of God to be revealed and why this is the most fantastic thing in the universe. Because we find ourselves drawn back to the power of the gospel at its core. 
Because when Adam and Eve sinned, what they were cursed, the enemy was cursed, and the land creation itself was subject to the curse. Death, disease, suffering spring into the world. God said, Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. We're waiting for a day when those thorns and thistles are turned into cypress and myrtle. The world that we live in now that encompasses so much real, true, difficult suffering is not the world that it forever will be. We do not gather together as Christians saying, well, I want to live a good moral life and that's all there is. No. Thank the Lord, no. What we experience now, God, God did not create the place to forever be a place where we'd have the anxiety of looking for, of being jobless and struggling to provide for our families. God did not create the world to forever be a place where we would suffer at the hand of other people's sin and see how others suffer at the hand of our sin. It's not God created the world to forever be. This is the world we live in now, but it is not the world that we will ever live in. Creation is waiting for the day for the sons of God to be revealed because that will herald the return of Jesus Christ. That will herald the completion of our redemption. That will herald an end to the curse and the cause of all suffering in the world. We know that when Christ comes back, our glorification it will be complete and we will receive resurrected bodies like our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that, that no longer suffer, that no longer die, that no longer get struck with disease. We will no longer encompass physical pain. We will no longer see sin and its effects in the world. When Jesus comes back, those in wheelchairs will walk freely. Those who are blind will see. Those who have been beaten up their whole lives and struggle with self-confidence will finally find joy and complete rest and hope as sons and daughters of the living God. When Jesus comes back, you will no longer feel the pull of that temptation again. You'll no longer feel the pull to the bottle or to the website or to the judgmental spirit. It will be gone. You no longer suffer the pain of the cutting remark or the crushed hope. Matthew 13, 43 says we will shine forth like the sun. Christian, you will shine like the sun when our glorification is complete. And one um, of my favorite authors, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he writes, glorification means full and entire deliverance from sin and evil in all their effects and in every respect, body, soul, and spirit. The whole man will be completely and entirely delivered from every harmful effect of sin, every tarnishing, every polluting effect of sin. In the midst of suffering, we can look at what we're enduring and we could rightly say, this is awful. And it is. But if we stay there, we are defeated. We have to look forward at where we are moving, at what is prepared for us, at the heaven that right now Jesus is fashioning for us for eternity. In the face of suffering, we have choices that we make. Again, we can grin and bear it and say, I'm, I'm just going to suck it up. And this is all there is. Having no hope in the future. We can curse God like Job's wife counsels him to do. It's a very real option. We can blame him, we can yell at him, 
we can reject him. We can tell him that he has let us down. Him who endured suffering, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, stricken, beaten, spit upon, ridiculed, punched in the face, crushed for our iniquities, by his stripes we are healed. We can blame that God. Or we can live life life in the light of eternity. We can recognize that this life is not all there is and that these afflictions are momentary. We can cling to Christ, our great high priest, that lived and died and was was resurrected, that we could have this eternal weight of glory for which we are striving and moving and going. Scriptures say that Jesus scorned the shame of the cross for the joy that was set before him. He saw the suffering that he was about to endure, but he did not linger there forever. He looked up. He scorned the shame. He went forward because he knew it's worth it. The redemption of this people that I have set my love upon is worth it. And I will endure because I see where I am going and I see the result that it will be. And it's worth it. Paul could look at the physical, emotional, and mental anguish that he went through is not worth comparing with what he was enduring if that was the price for the eternal weight of glory so great that in God's creation you have trees clapping and hills singing waiting for the consummation of God's kingdom. Christian, can you stop looking only at the suffering? I'm not telling you to ignore it. I'm telling you do not let your eyes stop there. Can you look forward at this eternal weight of glory that is prepared before you? Can you fight for that perspective? Writer of Hebrews Speaking in the great, the great, we call it the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 says, By faith, Abraham, when he, called to go, when he was called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose designer and builder was God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted they were aliens and strangers on this earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Did you notice that? Because of their perspective, God is not ashamed to be called their God. 
Because they say we are not trying, we are living as alien strangers and this is not our home and we expect, as Jesus would say, this to be a world full of trouble. They can say, but we have faith and we are longing for where we are going, not where we are. And it is that perspective that the living God, the creator of all that is seen and unseen, looks down on and says, I am not ashamed to be called your God. Because I see that perspective burning in you. Don't make yourself a resident here. You're a sojourner. You're an alien. You're a stranger. Thank God this is not eternity. You know, this land is like college. There's a couple pluses, but no one wants to stay there forever. None of us. God has a better country for you, an eternal country with a better future. Let's live in light of that. Hymn writer Henry Alford from Cambridge University once wrote, 10,000 times 10,000 in sparkling raiment bright, the armies of the ransomed saints throng forth in steeps of light. Tis finished, all is finished, their fight with death and sin. Fling open wide the golden gates and let the victors in. What rush of alleluias fills the earth and sky. What ringing of a thousand harps bespeaks a triumph nigh. O day for which creation and all its tribes were made. O joy for all its former woes a thousandfold repaid. Oh, then what raptured greetings on Canaan's happy shore. What knitting severed friendships up where partings are no more. Then eyes with joy shall sparkle that, then that brimmed with tears of late. Orphans no longer fatherless, widows no longer desolate. Bring near thy great salvation, thou lamb for sinners slain. Fill up the role of thine elect, then take thy power and reign. Appear desire of nations, thine exiles long for home. Show in the heavenly heaven thy promised sign, thou prince and savior. Living God, we thank you that you scorned the shame of the cross for the joy set before you, that we might have life and have it to the full. Have it to the full in the midst of this fallen world. We praise you that you came to redeem this world. We praise you, God, that loved ones that, that die are, that know, and that know you are dancing with you right now. We thank you that we will be for the hope of being transformed in the twinkling of an eye. We thank you for the completion of your kingdom. And we long for it. Amen, Lord Jesus. Come. Amen.